This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Well, around the world, COVID cases topping 169 million deaths, exceeding 3.5 million. More than 1.78 billion doses of the vaccine have been given. And here, closer to home, at least for me, New York City passed a milestone in the outbreaks, easing as the seven-day average for positive tests fell below 1% for the first time this year. Let's get into all that and more with Dr. Ian Lusbader, clinical professor of medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center. He joins us now on the phone from Long Island. Dr. Lusbader, good to talk to you today. How are you? Tim, uh, always a pleasure. Happy Friday. Doing very well. Happy Friday. I'm wondering how you're seeing this play out in in your own experience at NYU, uh, the seven-day average for positive tests falling below 1% for the first time this year. Definitely a dramatic reduction in hospitalizations. There's still a few uh, COVID beds uh, at at NYU. So it's not zero, but as you say, it's uh, below 1%. And certainly the number of uh, new cases and cases that need to be hospitalized are down dramatically. And, you know, we're seeing that in the, in the United States, which is encouraging um, cases coming down. And we have obviously a number of people who've, uh, who've had it and who've been immunized. So we're approaching herd immunity. Uh, you know, around the world, uh, definitely, uh, I, I, I don't think this is over yet by any stretch of the imagination. Well, I'm wondering if you think... It will. We'll get to the point that that the president has made a goal: seventy percent of U.S. adults having one shot by the Fourth uh, of July, and, and we're just over sixty percent at this point. That's a, that's a goal that he's put out. Are we going to make it? You know, I hope so. I, I think so. We still have a small um, group, uh, but a strong group of vaccine hesitant uh, people who've. You know, uh, watch videos on YouTube and on the internet, and uh, uh, and are are hesitant based on on uh, a variety of uh, videos and other information they get. You know, we do try and reassure people. Nothing is a hundred percent for sure. Um, I can tell that we're certainly not going to get to a hundred percent with vaccine hesitant people, but I think we'll be in a much safer zone if we get to that seventy percent. And I think getting that. Um, by July 4th is reasonable, yes. Yeah, the latest numbers from the CDC telling us that 62% of the population 18 years of age or older have received at least one dose of the vaccine. I'm wondering about how incentives can play into this. As you heard me mention earlier in the show, California is just the latest state to offer a vaccine lottery, $116.5 million in, in prizes available. This seems to be working, doesn't it? You know, it, it is to a degree. I, I don't think this has been done before. I, I'm unaware of any vaccine incentives that we've done in the recent past that I can think of. But whether it's in New York State with um, a free uh, university, state university or city university tuition, you know, in, in a raffle um, or prize money, uh, you know, it, it is a public health crisis, and I think uh, I think it makes sense to do it. It's certainly going to capture many. I don't know if all the vaccine-hesitant people, but I think as long as it's um, a positive step forward, I, I support it. 
I'm one of the tens of millions of people in the United States who this weekend will be traveling to visit family. And it will be the first time that I've seen my grandmother in since March of, of last year. She's 98. Everybody's vaccinated. We're excited to all see each other. But I got to tell you, it, it, it feels like for me, because we're all vaccinated, that that things are going to be just like they were before the pandemic. And I'm not expecting us to do anything differently. Are we making a mistake by doing that? No, I don't. I don't think so. And by the way, congratulations on good genes having grandparents who are ninety-eight. Very impressive, I must say. So that's that's a positive. Um, but I think the data uh, it really is reassuring in terms of being with vaccinated um, people in groups, uh, even if you haven't seen them for a while. I think it is safe. Ideally, you know, if you can sit outside, if the weather's nice, if you can, you know, still keep that six feet apart, maybe a gentle hug, and then and then step back a little bit, you know, just to be safe. But I think the data is very uh, clear that um, uh, staying together with vaccinated groups, indoors or outdoors, as the CDC said, is certainly fine to do. And even though we occasionally find a little bit of virus in the nasopharynx, you know, with swabs Mm. like the Yankees, you know, that we've talked about, I think it's going to be very safe. And I think the emotional positivity of being with family for your 98-year-old grandmother to see her uh, grandkids and and family has such a positive uh, energy that I think that that far outweighs the very small risk of of getting an infection. Yeah, we're certainly excited about it. Our our two-year-old gets to see her for the first time in more than half his life. Um, Dr. Lusbader, if we were doing this interview six, seven months ago, we'd be talking about a potential spike in, in cases following Thanksgiving or following Christmas, just in the last minute that we have, and we'll come back with you. Do you expect to see a similar spike in cases? Because they are down dramatically, but after this holiday weekend? I don't think we're going to see as big a spike because of the widespread vaccinations. I think in the U.S. we're on a good trend. Globally, I'm not so sure at all that this is over. I think we're having underreporting of many cases from many countries. But I think we're good in the United States. I don't think we're going to see a meaningful spike after the holiday weekend. But certainly globally, uh, it is by no means over. Let's get right back to it with Dr. Ian Lusbader, clinical clinical professor of medicine, excuse me, Dr. Lusbader at NYU Langone Medical Center, joining us on the phone from Long Island. Dr. Lusbader, I want to get to the uh, idea of COVID long haulers. It's something that we started to hear about about a year ago, and those folks who've had lingering COVID symptoms, what do we know about how they can be treated now? Well, it's definitely a challenge. Uh, We are seeing a a subset of patients who really have these ongoing symptoms, ongoing chest pain, cough, shortness of breath, brain fog, um, uh, heart issues. And we do know the virus affects every organ. In other words, we see uh, myocarditis, uh, cardiac inflammation, kidney, certainly lung, you know, obviously we, we've had. Why most people resolve almost to normal and why other people have these ongoing symptoms isn't completely clear. There are a number of clinics. NYU recently has a new clinic for long haulers uh, or post-COVID syndrome. It's not as if we have a magic uh, pill but we certainly are really trying to learn about this and, and follow those patients, kind of study the patients, try a variety of, of different approaches. There's some evidence that some of those patients, um, after they get vaccinated, uh, even though they've had COVID, obviously, and they have long-haul syndrome, uh, post-COVID syndrome, 
if you give them a vaccine, a subset of those do get better. So that's still another uh, motivation for people, even if they've had it, to get the vaccine. But there's definitely an ongoing set. I've had patients for a year who have just felt terribly, even though they have the antibodies and even though they've gone through it and their family has gone through it and the family feels better, they do not. Very hard to tease out exactly what that is or the magic formula to make them better. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm glad you mentioned the anecdotal evidence that we, we had seen earlier this year about those who had been vaccinated, the symptoms actually getting better. Do we have anything beyond anecdotal at this point? There are no uh, really formal studies. All of those studies are really being done, and there are a number of clinics that are being followed. And as typically, it's a multi-specialty approach. In other words, uh, we'll have pulmonar- pulmonologists involved, lung specialists, and neurologists involved. Uh, it's really a number of of different specialties, and they're really analyzed. We try a number of approaches for symptomatic treatment and antiviral treatment and a host of different things, but there is not um, a consensus. Certainly, it would be interesting to look at some things like ivermectin uh, that that has been looked at for prevention and Mm. treatment. Uh, I think we're going to have to explore some unusual uh, or untried approaches since this is basically new. And we're really learning, uh, trying to learn how to deal with it as best as can be. Fortunately, it's a small group of patients, but they are very intractable. Many are miserable and many have difficulty really returning to work. Yeah, it's it, the people who've been affected by it. I, I, I really feel for them. Dr. Lusbader, I want to end just talking about the origins of the coronavirus, because over the weekend, there was a report in The Wall Street Journal that said three researchers from the Wuhan Institute of Virology in China were sick enough all the way back in November of 2019 that they went to the hospital. The Wall Street Journal uh, cites an undisclosed U.S. intelligence report. And I'm, and I'm wondering if you think that we are ever going to know from a perspective of this medical community, the scientific community, where the virus came I, from? I, I think it's really important to, to do our best to find out. I think there's mounting evidence that it really was a lab leak. You do? I think, um, I do. I, I think transparency in science is, and medicine is what it's all about. You know, we, invent, we go to other hospitals, we read papers, uh, labs are visited to be reviewed and, and see what if whatever findings or scientific breakthroughs are found. It's a very open system, at least in the United States. And I think when you're prevented from doing that, uh, it's very suspicious. And, and Rand Paul, Senator Paul, actually raised some good points about no intervening animal species being found. Hmm. And I think um, we really trust scientists, and I think Dr. Fauci um, might have been too trusting uh, in this case, we really need to keep a lot of research domestically uh, and and carefully monitored because all of the labs in the United States right. you know, are reviewed by, by central agencies to well, prevent this sort of thing. Well, hopefully we get to a point where we actually can determine the origins. Dr. Lusbader, it's always great to chat with you. Have a great weekend. Thank you so much for joining us. That's Dr. Ian Lusbader, Clinical Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone's Medical Center. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Well, in April, the House of Representatives agreed to discuss the possibility of establishing a commission to study reparations. It happened more than three decades after the proposal was first introduced. President Biden called the resolution a good idea, but full reparations from the federal government probably won't be coming anytime soon. 
That said, the city of Evanston, Illinois, is already getting started. Joining us today with an article in, it's a feature in the current issue of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine, available on newsstands and at Bloomberg.com slash Businessweek, is Joel Weber, editor at Bloomberg News, and Susan Burfield, projects and investigations reporter at Bloomberg Businessweek. Uh, they join us from Brooklyn. Joel, um, I, I, I'm, I'm wondering about this because reparations, or at least how Evanston is defining reparations, are a lot more complicated than just giving people money. That's right. And, and I just thought uh, this story um, that Susan and her uh, colleague, our colleague uh, Jordan Holman, worked on for the magazine was amazing and perfectly timed for for this week and the events of this week. You know, here we are a, a year after George Floyd's murder, um, and and I think the reparation story is one that it was has been you know one of the most interesting to watch. Evanston is Illinois is particularly interesting. Because this is the first U.S. city to really promise that that they would take this stuff on, and and boy, that's not easy. It turns out even even the the word reparations can be controversial. So so Susan, can you can you help us understand what um, Evanston uh, is going through and and where it might go from here? Yeah, sure. So you know, as you said, there's um, kind of two efforts underway throughout the country. There's uh, an effort at the national level, at least to begin talking about a federal reparations program that would probably come to trillions of dollars um, for every eligible African-American. And then there are cities like Evanston that are looking at what um, the local cases for reparations for, you know, injustice, discrimination against black residents that the cities um, themselves are responsible for and that they can pay uh, within their budget. So that's usually programs of millions of dollars. In the case of Evanston, $10 million. And Susan, they're doing this through the, the lens of real estate. Uh, explain why that is. Yeah, so you know, for a city like Evanston, um, it's not going to attempt um, to make restitution for something as huge as the years of slavery. But what the city wants to take responsibility for and is holding itself accountable accountable for is for housing discrimination um, that black residents faced in Evanston for several decades um, that contributes, as we know, everywhere to um, a racial income gap of almost seven times between black and white families. And, you know, in Evanston, um, it's pretty well documented the ways in which black residents um, at one point lived all over the city, and then over the course of um, about two decades, were all steered toward one neighborhood in Evanston, now known as the Fifth Ward. And Susan, can you tell us more specifically about Evanston? Because the story and the story that you write, and I should also add that this is um, episode of uh, the Paycheck podcast as well, so there's a whole podcast version of this same story. Um, I'd just like to understand, like, you know, rewind the clock, because this goes back actually decades in Evanston. What what happened? Yeah, so, you know, um, Evanston can um, document kind of the, the first arrival of black residents to the late um, 1850s and 60s. Uh, and over the years, you know, there were increased number of black residents, especially the Great Migration um, of the 1920s. And... As more black residents 
settled in Evanston, uh, there began kind of official and unofficial codes and restrictions uh, on where they could live. And then there came redlining, which was a national policy, but also took place in Evanston, um, that further made it difficult for black residents who now were all living in this one fairly concentrated area um, to get a fair mortgage. And that policy, you know, plus underinvestment by the city, you know, results in a neighborhood where the property values are lower than elsewhere in Evanston. The homes are worth less and families were uh, lost wealth. Um, in one of the stories that we highlight um, of Carla Sutton, his home, his grandfather's home was actually moved from one part of Evanston to the Fifth Ward. And the home, had it been um, remained where it was, I'm sorry, would today be worth maybe $500,000. Um, where it is now, it's worth uh, about $150,000. Not even that far away from, from where it was in the 1920s. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Susan, $10 million. How are, mm-hmm. That's the beginning. Um, how are they paying for it? So the money is coming from a new sales tax on uh, the sale of recreational marijuana um, legalized in Illinois at the start of 2020. Evanston has one dispensary and uh, the city is uh, collecting a 3% sales tax and estimates that sales will be about a million dollars or sorry, the sales tax will be about a million dollars a year and they've dedicated the first $10 million of that to reparations. So it could be a 10-year program. You know, if they raise more money through taxes um, sooner, they'll, they'll spend that. And they're trying to raise additional funds. Susan, can you talk a little bit about uh, just the word reparations and why, that's, why it's getting pushback in just the last minute we have? Sure. So I think, that, you know, there's a sense among some black rep- residents that reparations should really be reserved for the federal government's efforts uh, to make up for as best it can, compensate for and apologize for slavery and the discrimination that followed, um, and that every black American, African American should be eligible. And the sense that a smaller program uh, such as Evanston's, and especially this first step that just focuses on housing, is a bit too limited to be called reparations. Susan Burfield, Projects and Investigations reporter at Bloomberg Business Week. It's a fantastic feature that you wrote along with Jordan Holman. Also joining me now, Joel Weber, editor at Bloomberg Business Week. A big thank you to both of you for joining us. Uh, you can find Susan's story featured in the new issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. It's available on newsstands and at Bloomberg.com slash Business You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic. On Bloomberg Radio. Well, if you've been paying any attention to what's been happening with cryptocurrencies, you know that volatility, at least of late, is the name of the game. And if you're keeping track right now, Bitcoin uh, down another $2,300, Joining us now to help us make sense of it all is Pat Levecki, CEO of Oasis Pro Markets. Joining us now on the phone from Darien, Connecticut. Pat, it's great to have you back on a Bloomberg Business Week Radio. How you doing? Doing great, Tim. Uh, thank you for inviting me back. 
So, so take me back to just a couple of weeks ago when we got that tweet from Elon Musk, that first tweet that, that set off, I think, fair to say, this most recent round of volatility when it comes to cryptocurrencies. And he talked right. about the energy usage uh, and, and Tesla no longer accepting Bitcoin for purchase of cars. What did you think to yourself? Uh, oh, boy, uh, to start <laughs> with. And then, um, you that's know, a no- by the way, that's a normal reaction to an Elon Musk tweet. That's right. We're on the same page there. Um, look, we're at the tip of the spear of this whole crypto um, progression. And in 10 years, digital will be ubiquitous technologies as well as crypto, in my opinion. Oh, and uh, just in regards to uh, before I get started diving into, uh, you know, my views on certain items, I just want to share. These are my views and not the views of Oasis Pro Markets. OK, in, in, important distinction. Um, I, I do. I do want to know about the about energy usage, though. I mean, do you, this is this is now front and center. I mean, you probably heard me talking with Charlie Pellet about the illegal Bitcoin mine that was found in the UK, Iran banning Bitcoin mining until September, September 22nd because of, of energy usage concerns. How, how does cryptocurrency get to a place where it's not consuming as much energy? Well, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions about that, Tim, as well. Um, there is energy usage, but I, I believe Kathy Wood has also shared that 50%, while 50% of the mining activity right now is in China, most of that is supported by renewable and hydroelectric energy sources, just as an FYI. Um, so that's on the Bitcoin front. On the ETH front, which is the second largest cryptocurrency out there, there are major improvements coming along um, over the summer, uh, which is called the Berlin Fork, and then the ETH Layer 2 by the end of the year. And just think about it this way. Today, it's a four-lane highway for Ethereum, the Ethereum blockchain. At the uh, When Layer 2 is implemented, now, it's a bit controversial because it was supposed to have been implemented a couple of years ago, um, but they've been going through the auditing process and improving it because it's a community of basically coders who have put this all together. That four-lane highway will be, you know, just as an example, a 48-lane highway. And with that, there's much less electricity usage required. Now, with Elon's comments, he came out, he did come out a a few, uh, about a week later, and stated that he had spoken to the the, uh, North American Bitcoin miners, and they had committed to publishing current and planned renewable usage as part of mining. So he started stepping back from that comment from two weeks ago. And I'm sure uh, between us, he didn't expect the kind of reaction that it Mm. implemented. I want to talk, uh, touch on regulation here, too, um, and specifically get your thoughts on what we heard from bank executives yesterday um, and earlier this week. Jamie Dimon uh, said to members of, of Congress um, when asked about cryptocurrency, it was a buyer beware product and it goes back to how you run a business. He said, quote, I don't smoke marijuana, but if you make it nationally legal, I'm not going to stop our people from banking it. What, what did you make of his comments around crypto? Well, I, I think that he, you know, the view is um, uh, throughout my conversations with with others in this particular space that uh, regulation is coming through enforcement rather than, um, you know, along the lines Gensler's asked for a market regulator. Uh, that probably won't happen this year or over the next couple of years. Uh, it may eventually step up, but um, it, in the meantime, through regulation of the U.S. securities laws. Um, there's a, this is the Wild West, Tim. 
Yeah. And and the Wild West, it, it was an even wilder West a year ago. And it's, you know, a lot of uh, important players are coming into the market. So you've seen several major uh, regulators from the uh, Trump administration, like Brian Brooks and Brett Redfern, move over to crypto exchanges. Uh, uh, Redfern was at uh, um, the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, he ran one of the divisions there. He's now at Coinbase. Brian Brooks was the acting controller of the currency. He's now at Binance. And when you see the regulators making these types of moves, I think that, you know, since they were on the inside, now they're on the outside. Mm-hmm. They, they do see the opportunities here in regards to um, not not only, obviously, uh, an opportunity for growth for themselves, but the opportunity for the United States, for the markets, et cetera. But regulation does need to come. Well, it, well, what, just in the last 30 seconds that we have, Pat, what does that regulation look like? Uh, fantastic question. I think the crypto exchanges are heading toward being regulated. I run a regulated exchange for digital securities. Um, right now, uh, there are there's no regulation whatsoever in regards to bid-ask spreads, uh, deliveries, et cetera. So it's buyer beware across the board. And uh, once regulation comes, you'll see this market take off. Okay, just 10 seconds left. Type of volatility that you expect to see with cryptocurrency for the remainder of the year. Okay, uh, in the next week, the Bitcoin fair, uh, 12,000 people in Miami. Yeah. Huge opportunity for Bitcoin okay. uh, volatility. There it is. Pat Levecchia, CEO at Oasis Pro Markets, joining us today from Connecticut. Have a great weekend, Pat. Thanks so much for joining us. Talking all about Bitcoin and crypto. Bitcoin, by the way at $35,922. This is Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed, it is with just over 10 minutes until the last trading day of the month concludes. We are looking at gains across the board on the Dow, the S&P 500, and on the NASDAQ. Well, joining us now to help make sense of it all is John Trainer, Chief Investment Officer at People's United Advisors. It has $9 billion in assets under management. Joining us on the phone from Bridgeport, Connecticut. John, how are you doing on this uh, last Friday before a nice three-day weekend? Hey, you know, it's nice to see a nice rally in the market. So uh, this is a great way to end the month and start the weekend. Yeah, well, uh, you know, unfortunately for us on the East Coast, it seems like the weather's not going to be so great this weekend, which is a little disappointing. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. Let's talk markets and, and, and really what you make of them right now. So it was a, here we are at the end of the month. Uh, the Dow higher by more than 2%. The S&P 500 higher by 7 tenths of 1%. The Nasdaq uh, finishing the month looks like down, at least as of right now, about 2 2%. What do you make of it all? You know, what we're seeing is just a continuation of the themes that we've seen all through this uh, through this year, sort of the give and take, the ebb and flow between growth and value. You know, is the economy going to be too hot or is it, is it going to be, uh, you know, a, a more moderate growth? We have been in the camp that you want to, and we started doing this last year, build your portfolio for the economic rebound, start to 
decrease your growth emphasis, increase the value emphasis in the portfolio, because we definitely think we're, we're going to continue to see good news on the economy, good news uh, as, as uh, the service industries start to reopen. So you want to position your portfolio there. And, you know, I know it's tough with the, the daily ebb and flow, but keep your eyes focused on the rebounding economy and increase the cyclical exposure in your portfolio. But to what extent is that priced in right now already? Well, I, I think, you know, with with regard to a, a lot of the sort of the, the deeper cyclicals, you know, they've had a nice pop. You sort of had the uh, the bounce in a lot of the, the stocks that were given up for dead last year. But, you know, one of the things that we've been doing is, is continuing to take profits in the big techs. We're now slightly underweight. We were overweight last year, so we're underweight. I don't think we're, we're, we're to the end of that. I, I still think, you know, there's time to uh, to take profits in the tech so i i think some of some of this is factored in but when you see a lot of the frothiness in the market i i'm not sure that a lot of investors have positioned their their portfolios for the cyclical recovery there's still a lot of uh, sort of the the big tech ownership out there that i still think needs to be rotated out of and what do they rotate into then specifically well we're buying well we like the financials so we're we're buying you know more of the the mid-sized banks which are are more focused on the rebounding economy. The money center banks have done very well, but you want to own more of the mid-sized banks and then the industrials. We like the industrials. We want to be exposed to that, and we're we're buying you know some of, some of the uh, industrials that you know definitely did not fall that hard last year that have good good cash flow growth, and we 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 want to be exposed to them. So financials and industrials are the two areas we're emphasizing. Financials and industrials. Well, let's talk a little bit about the I word inflation, and and to what extent you believe, like the Federal Reserve and officials there, we hear over and over again that it's transitory. Yeah, you know, and you know, one of the things we do is we we keep an eye on the bond market, and what the mm-hmm. bond market is telling you is that they believe the Fed. Yeah, I mean, look at the uh, look at the inflation news that we've had uh, recently here, um, and the bond market's really not reacting. So investors are giving the Fed the benefit of the doubt. Um, you know, one of the things that we do know though is you know we're probably going to get some surprises. We think we will get some surprises on the upside, meaning it's going to shock the market, and they'll think the Fed is behind the curve. Generally, when that happens, uh, your the value companies tend to do better in that kind of an environment. So, again, that's another reason why you you probably don't want to own a lot of the higher PE stocks. You want to you know have, cushion your portfolio with uh, with some of the value uh, value stocks. But you know we we don't think we don't think inflation is going to get out of control. But we think we're going to get some scares coming forward, and uh, it's going to it's going to shake the market a little bit. What Maybe is, we'll see it in the bond market. Well, we're what's the sure. data? What's the data that that you're watching about that? Um, it, it's it's is it more is wage growth more important there? Is that where you're keeping an eye on it, when it comes to inflation? You, you hit the you hit the nail on the head. You know, I I know uh, you know our, our economic team keeps a very close eye on commodity inflation, but you. Know, Inflation that we're, we're most focused on, and again, we're going to get uh, the employment numbers uh, next week, so we're going to get some fresh data. But the wage inflation data is really what we're keeping our, our eye on. Um, you know, we've seen tremendous increases uh, in, uh, in the increase in the, the minimum wage. A lot of employers, a lot of local employers are, are struggling to hire people. That wage inflation, that if we see that start to pick up, 
that would tell us, oh, boy, oh, boy, maybe we are getting uh, some more sustainable inflation here, and that would really spook the market. So you hit the nail on the head. Wage inflation, much more so than commodity inflation, is important to us. So, so if, if, if wage inflation is, is most important, what happens if, if you start to see significant wage inflation? What do you do to your portfolio? You know, then we start to get a little bit more defensive uh, because then, you know, again, you know, the, the Fed policy acts with a lag. And, you know, if, uh, if the Fed starts to get spooked and if the if investors start to think the Fed is behind the curve, again, they're, they're giving the Fed the benefit of the doubt now. If they believe the Fed is behind the curve, we certainly uh, think we're going to see interest rates higher. So our portfolios right now, we're short duration. We're short the index. Um, but, you know, a, a concern that we've got would be with the overall market. So I, I think you could see a little bit of a pullback if, if confidence in the Fed gets shaken, then I think you'd see a pullback in the financial markets across the board. And that would be something that, number one, we, we don't think is going to happen just yet, but we'd have to make some adjustments to portfolios. Hey, John, I, I think one thing that is surprising to me is how time flies and that the next jobs report is already coming next week because it does feel like we, we just had that 266,000 number that was such a disappointment against what economists expected of a million in the, the most recent report. Um, what are your expectations for next week? And, and do you think that given that we are still not out of this pandemic and given that kids are not back in school full time, uh, we are going to see another disappointment? No, actually, uh, we actually think you're going to see the uh, the unemployment rate drop. You know, our forecast is to uh, to get down to 5.9%. So we actually think it's going to be a good number. Hmm. I know a lot of people were very surprised last month that it was a, a relatively weak number. We think that's going to change. Uh, you know, just just from anecdotally, what we're seeing on the on the on the small business side, um, we think you're going to start to see the uh, the rehiring. And really, it's that rehiring in the you know the waiters and waitresses and the, the lower wage jobs. That's really what what the Fed is looking for. So we think the Fed is going to see some rehiring next week, which would be encouraging. And uh, we'll see what how that impacts their uh, their tapering conversations. So, John, just in the twenty seconds that we have left, um, does that change how you're thinking about potential wage growth if if the jobs report does look good? Yeah, if if it if it looks good, and you know, again, we're, we're hoping it's a good number. We're hoping uh, we see rehiring in the lower wage areas. You yeah. know, one month is not going to shake us, but that's really what we want to see: rehiring John, in the low wage jobs. We're going to have to leave it there. John Trainer's chief investment officer at People's United Advisors, joining us on the phone from Bridgeport, Connecticut. John, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.